Hello and welcome to Beyond Sustainability, the podcast all about remediating and restoring our environment. Brought to you by Newfields Environmental Consultancy. I'm your host, Richard Williams, and this is the final part of our podcast mini-series, looking at the lessons learned from the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, response and impact study, 10 years on. In this final episode, I will be discussing environmental forensic chemistry, a practice that combines many different scientific disciplines in investigating environmental contamination. So I'm very excited to be talking with two of Newfield's forensic chemistry team, Dr. Scott Stout, an organic geochemist with 29 years of upstream and downstream petroleum industry and consultant experience, and Steve Mattingly, an environmental chemist who specialises in the diagnostic measurement of persistent pollutants in urban environments. Now, between them, they have authored over 260 scientific publications, hold five university degrees, and have almost 60 years of combined experience in forensic chemistry. Scott and Steve, thank you very much for joining me today. Good pleasure. Good morning. So, first of all, let's um, let's start off with the basics. Can you can you guys give me an introduction to what is forensic chemistry? How does it work? Well, um, forensic chemistry is a uh, you know discipline in environmental science that um, relies upon the differences in the chemical composition of contamination to determine their sources. Um, some of those sources might be extant, like a, an obvious oil spill that has happened that we'll talk more about today. And some of them might be historic in nature, in which case forensic chemistry needs to understand um, historic practices in industry and how contamination might change in the environment. But all of that is linked to the chemistry of the contamination and how one source of contamination is going to differ from another source of contamination. So, of course, there's there's liability questions related to that. And the application is, of course, well, who's responsible for contamination is a big part of what um, we try to answer in our research. So is this a fairly new field of science in some ways? Is this a, is this a fairly modern twist on, on chemistry? I, I'd say its origins uh, were in the early to mid-1990s. Um, when uh, in, in the wake of Exxon Valdez, honestly, was a, was a huge initial application of environmental forensic chemistry, wherein researchers in uh, Prince William Sound, both in working for Exxon and working for the trustees at the time, were you know trying to establish where the Exxon Valdez crude oil went versus what other contamination might already exist, even in a pristine environment like uh, Prince William Sound. For example, earthquakes in the 1960s had caused uh, oil contamination to leak into Prince William Sound. There was some development and the, and the, uh, uh, of the pipeline and the growth of the city of Valdez that had led to some contamination in the, in the region. So there was this application of chemistry to determine where specifically the Exxon Valdez oil went. And that was really one of the origins of environmental forensics. And it grew from there to beyond oil spills to all types of applications, whether there were the corner gas station, um, major oil spills like that, uh, 
just applications in urban waterways where there's obvious contamination, but the sources of that are unclear given um, stormwater that enters there, um, any industry that might be along that waterway now or historically, those types of questions uh, have grown over the last 30 years in the application of this um, to what we do today. One of the very exciting things about environmental forensic chemistry is um, that it works well in the in the crossroads of so many other disciplines. So there's chemistry, there's geology, uh, there's the history, there's law, and all of these factors explain why contamination uh, resides where it does today, how it degrades, where it moves. Um, and there, there's so many different factors that once you have an appreciation for them and you can put them, you can, you can couple uh, historical documents with, with uh, chemistry, with how the land is developed. Um, there's all sort of societal questions that sort of have important uh, connective tissues to what, to what we're working on here. Um, and uh, so it's a very exciting field. Uh, it, you know, when I was in college, uh, there really wasn't anything called an environmental forensics degree. Um, not actually sure that's really a thing now yet, but uh, maybe somewhere. But um, uh, the point is, is it's evolving rapidly. Uh, and what makes it exciting is that it, it is uh, very multidisciplinary. Yeah, and Steve, I'd like to add, I'd be, we'd be remiss to not say that um, two of our partners in, in, in our practice, uh, Dr. Greg Douglas and Dr. Alan Euler, were, were on the forefront of the uh, Exxon Valdez work that took place in the early 1990s. So we're fortunate to have such a team of experienced people that we get to work with. The Deepwater Horizon incident. Um, 2020 is the 10 year anniversary of that uh, environmental um, incident. And I understand that both of you were quite heavily involved with the impact studies uh, of Deepwater Horizon, uh, particularly with the, on the forensic chemistry side. Could you, could you give us both a, sort of a, a brief summary of how you became involved with that project? Yes, I, I can say that um, I, I, I in the, uh, I, I remember being on vacation with my family in, uh, <laughs> at, at that time. It was a, the spring vacation, um, and my first knowledge of that was uh, on, a, on a news report. And, and I must say that within, um, within a day or so, we had our, we collectively at Newfields had our um, uh, contacted people we knew working um, either for BP or for the federal government as to who um, might be, um, uh, where our services might be um, of, of need. And it wasn't but within a few days time that we established a relationship with um, NOAA, um, who was the lead response agency for um, the impact of the spill on the on the Gulf of Mexico. And um, you know, as is much of the case in our uh, anybody's professional careers, it's it's a matter of who you know and how well you are known, um, which I think is uh, combined to the fact that we were um, immediately, you know, 
scooped up to work with Noah in this case. And within a matter of uh, a week, we were on board in helping to develop an analytical plan for the uh, analysis of the what were anticipated to be thousands and thousands of samples, as it turned out. So it was uh, being, being, you know, having, having the experience that we had and uh, knowing who to contact gave us the, a leg up on getting the, the amount of work that we did during uh, Deepwater Horizon. Steve, anything to add to that? Well, uh, what, what happened um, uh, was uh, the, the, the work started uh, with uh, NOAA in the offshore environment. So you have to remember that one of the things that makes Deepwater Horizons so different is that uh, it, it was a, complica a, a, a set of complicated factors that ultimately led to the release, but they're drilling in very deep, very cold, very um, conditions under a lot of pressure. And equipment behaved differently. And judgment was made probably too expeditiously on many issues. And the release occurred, but the release is in, um, you know, 2,000 meters of water. It's, you know, um, uh, miles offshore. Um, and um, so the immediate impact um, and the immediate impact assessments were all really focused on, you know, what I call ground zero, that that uh, that area where the oil was first coming up. Uh, and Scott was, um, you know, pulling all the resources possible to uh, to help collect the right samples um, and uh, def and get the samples that will best define the source signature. I mentioned that earlier uh, for the oil because we knew a couple of things. The first is that a lot of natural oil seeps up and down um, the, uh, the Gulf Coast um, area and differentiating Deepwater Horizon oil from those all coming from natural formations, you know, somewhat near each other uh, can be um, uh, very, uh, very um, difficult. Um, so Scott was focused on the offshore piece, getting samples as they come came up, getting samples right out of the pipe, getting samples of floating, getting samples of, you know, unfortunately marine creatures that were showing up with oil over them. They needed to document that that oil was deep water horizon you know, in origin. But then the the, the winds uh, blew. I think it took about a month for the winds to blow the oil plumes um, floating on the surface uh, inshore. Um, and the reason why the inshore uh, investigation was different is that the sampling techniques uh, are have to be catered towards you know, shorelines, very shallow water, um, and so the logistics uh, can get uh, quite complicated. So, um, so I, I think it was at the coffee pot uh, maker in our kitchen uh, in the office uh, where we were we were sort of talking about our various uh, portfolios of work, and I said. Uh, uh, Scott, you know, do you want me to help you with uh, the nearshore? And uh, he said yes. So uh, it was a coffee pot moment that uh, pulled me into the deep water project. Um, but of course, I've been doing a lot of work in urban waterways and, and with oil spills there. So it was a natural fit. So 
what were your main aims from the from the forensic chemistry side of things? And it's obviously, you started off by getting the characteristic signature of the oil as it was coming out of the well. Um, how did that evolve as 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 the plume grew, as the plume moved around? Um, what other other things did you have to do? Well, uh, yeah, like like Steve mentioned, and certainly we we were uh, we and everybody was interested in characterizing the. The actual crude oil that was that was being spilled. So there were samples collected um, through you know very um, well thought out protocols uh, to collect representative oil samples from uh, from the wellhead. And you remember seeing those images of the oil gushing out of the broken riser pipe on the seafloor that we all solved. So imagine trying to get a sample of that um, to the to the surface without changing it much. Um, so there was uh, uh, quite a bit of work that went into um, uh, collecting a sample at, that would be representative of the actual oil coming out of the wellhead. And that was done. It was collected through um, um, you know, uh, a new riser pipe that was installed to the surface that was then trying to recover oil um, on shipboard at the surface. Um, so we, we collected this oil. Um, and of course, oil was everywhere out in the floating in the in in the ocean at that time. There was um, cruises that were planned very early on to uh, respond to that oil, trying to clean it up. But there were also scientific cruises planned to assess exactly where the oil was going, um, how it was changing in the environment, and what you know uh, natural resources, be they water, uh, sediments, or biota, that were being impacted by this this uh, oil. Um, so uh, there was these scientific cruises and scientific collection efforts that were targeted at all sorts of um, uh, natural resources in the environment, and they included, like Steve said, um, you know, uh, sea turtles and sargassum, which is the floating seaweed that is pervasive in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, deep sea sediments, deep sea corals, um, uh, all types of marine life. Dolphins was a, of importance uh, in their exposures that we looked at. But as Steve said, the oil made its way to shore as well. And therein, of course, are many more natural resources uh, where exposure could be, um, could, could uh, impact those environments, whether they were seagrass beds, which are important habitats for many organisms, as well as the extensive marshlands and beaches um, throughout the Gulf of Mexico. So all these scientific studies sort of came one after the other in um, uh, uh, trying to establish where exactly the oil went. Um, you know, as far as the federal government was concerned and the other trustees, the state trustees, um, they needed to prove what was Macondo or Deepwater Horizon oil. Macondo was the name of the well so we often refer to the actual oil as the Macondo oil. Um, they had to prove chemically that the oil that you saw on this sea turtle or the oil that you saw in this marsh was in fact Macondo oil. And that's where forensic chemistry came in. Um, you know, much of that is intuitive. Of course, it looks like Macondo oil, but the chemistry is the, the real telling factor in that. So, um, in the course of all these studies, uh, as Steve indicated, we, we analyzed uh, somewhere in the range of 35,000 samples 
different matrices, many of them water, but many of them these sediments and biota of all shapes and colors. That, um, the objective was to determine if in fact this was Macondo oil or some other source of contamination. Because as Steve also mentioned, the Gulf of Mexico is not a pristine environment. There has been oil production there for a hundred years. Um, there's populations along the Gulf Coast with contamination, you know, stemming from uh, all sorts of uh, anthropogenic activities there. Um, and there's natural oil seeps, as Steve mentioned, um, which, you know, geologically have occurred for millions of years um, and have impacted the Gulf of Mexico with oils that are slightly different from the Macondo oil. And it was those sort of slight differences that were needed to be um, recognized in um, sort of proving the case of what was impacted by Macondo oil versus what may have been impacted earlier by pre-existing contamination in the environment. You mentioned that when you're taking samples from the base of the world, when you're trying to actually characterize the oil, the Macando oil coming directly from the from the well, um, you mentioned it might change when you're taking it from the seafloor to the surface. What, what, what factors could cause it to change? Well, um, uh, if, if we had only collected samples of the surface oil, the surfacing oil itself, it had would have transported um, through 1.6 kilometers of seawater sea before it even reaches the surface. And in the course of that um, rising to the sea surface, there are certain chemicals in the oil that would be removed and dissolved into the seawater. So, uh, and of course, even uh, instantly upon reaching the sea surface, evaporation starts to affect the oil as well. So the objective is to, um, you know, collect a sample as fresh as possible, unaffected un by the uh, uh, having moved through a water column or been exposed to the atmosphere uh, for any length of time. Right. Okay. So the, just looking at the crude oil in, in, the, in the ground, when you're characterizing it as well, is, is that crude oil homogenous? Is it, is it fairly easy to characterize or can it have natural variations over time? And, and well, it, um, there is where the geology comes into play and needing to understand the, uh, those aspects of, of uh, oil reservoirs. So Deepwater Horizon uh, Macondo well was targeting a single reservoir when it blew out. And as a result, a single reservoir is quite homogeneous. I can't say it's entirely homogeneous. There are instances where heterogeneities within reservoirs can be recognized from top to bottom or from left to right within a large, you know, reservoir in the deep subsurface. But those heterogeneities are extremely small, and the expectation was that this Macondo well tapping a single reservoir would have a highly homogeneous oil uh, that was coming out. Even though the spill went on for 87 days, we didn't see um, changes in the character of that oil that was being recovered as it, as it came out. So it was quite homogeneous, but the key is it's different from the next reservoir uh, or the other, re other reservoirs in the area that may be um, naturally seeping because they've been faulted. Um, so, it, but they're very subtle differences. And therein's where the details that we talked about initially of looking for specific chemicals that might not normally be targeted in an environmental forensic investigation is what you need to look for to distinguish 
Macondo Reservoir oil from another reservoir oil. All these Gulf of Mexico oils are slightly different from one another, and it's in there, therein is what we were focused on to distinguish Macondo from these other sources. Very detailed differences. So, Stephen, working as, as the oil moved away from the uh, source of the, the spill, the, the, the um, uh, drilling well, what were you finding then when you were looking kilometers away on the seashore on animals? How had the oil changed and what, what was it you were particularly looking for in order to identify? That yeah, it's, it, it's a fascinating question. Um, the, uh, one, one of the things I'd like to point out is that um, in, in, in the chemical work and the chemical fingerprinting that we are doing, uh, it is important to reconcile uh, those differences with, um, with the law. And the law says that uh, you know BP or whomever is responsible for the spill um, are responsible for their oil, but not anybody else's. So when you come and when you're offshore, you're like, well, you know, is it ours or is it you know an episodic release from a different natural sea? Big, big question. When you get into the nearshore environment, you have to consider another factor. In Louisiana alone they have thousands of oil releases a year not to disparage them there's a lot of there's just a lot of human activity there um, and other there are hundreds of spills in mississippi and alabama etc bp is not responsible for any of that so the the methods that we use using these small differences or big differences in the hydrocarbon fingerprint um, that Scott is talking to is absolutely critical. So you need to be measuring these uh, compounds over a long period of time um, with a very high degree of precision and accuracy. Frankly, it's never been done before. And when in, in the teams that we've assembled, we were able to do it. And we do have a publication on uh, the precision and accuracy over the, the life of that project, which... Um, you know, it's probably buried in some chemical in, in the chemical literature, but it's it's critical important, critically important to understand that there were a lot of additional quality control parameters that we had to implement in there. But the exciting part is what you focused on. How do you how do you um, uh, appreciate what the changes were? And there are there's this group of compounds called um, geochemical biomarkers. Uh, which are very stable, they resist change. Um, but then there are also other groups of compounds like polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, normal alkanes, etc., that tell us how this oil is weathering as it moves inshore and as it plunks itself down in the nearshore environment, where we have lots of other oil from all of these other sources. So how do you kind of ferret that out? Well, um, we, we were able to do this. Um, Scott did some absolutely amazing work with identifying a set of um, a dozen or two uh, ratios, relative abundances of these uh, very important diagnostic compounds, which retained their signature from the pipe up to the surface and all the way inshore. And it shown how remarkable that is, is the degradation that occurred from the pipe 
to the floating oils that were coming into my zone, the nearshore zone, those uh, ratios and the relative abundance of the hydrocarbon were, were used to show that the, the oil arriving in the nearshore was 65% depleted. So over half the hydrocarbons coming out of the pipe were evaporated to the air, dissolved into the ocean, largely in the offshore environment. And then as it floated into the nearshore, um, it continued to degrade because it's floating on the surface. The light is hitting it. The water's warm. The microbes, the microbes are working on it a little bit, but then it hits the surf and it hits the shoreline where it contacts particulates, sediment, underwater, soils, above water. Um, that's conventional way of, of thinking about it. But those microbes are loaded. The, the soil particles are loaded with microbes. And as soon as that oil hits the microbes, the biodegradation goes sky high. Why does that happen? Because there have been millennia of oil releases, low-level oil releases, and some probably high-level releases, hitting the shoreline over geological time. So the microbial communities that are in the Gulf of Mexico are primed to degrade this stuff. Now, that's not to say there were not impacts. There were impacts all over the place, and we documented chemically that the impacts occurred from Louisiana to Florida. Um, but as that oil came in, um, the, the real like eye-opener story here is the, the profound impact of the natural processes to degrade this oil. So it comes in, it's 65% depleted, it hits the surf, some of it goes subtidal, meaning going under the water into the sediments where it was laying down in mats, and that material degraded to about 87% um, within the study time period, which went to about uh, 2014. It obviously continues to degrade um, in that environment. And then, as I mentioned, it hits the surf. Some of it goes subtitle. Some of it gets washed up on the shore. Some of it with wind gets blown inshore um, a ways. Um, and that's those stranded oils range in depletion uh, between 94 and 97 percent. And so when you walk the shoreline today or after a storm, uh, you might see little black fragments on the beach. And that material has, um, you know, is, is, is only probably five to one percent of the original oil uh, that uh, made up that material um, originally. I've got tons of questions after that. So first of all, go back to you mentioned the ratio, these key ratios which you use to differentiate um, the oil from the, the spill and other just even naturally occurring or, or smaller background oil as it were in the area. Was part of your work to categorize the other oils from that area or were you able to do that from literature? But it, was, it was actually, you know, it, it, it evolved in the course of the study, right? There, there was some scientific literature of deep sea seeps uh, in the Gulf of Mexico and their characteristics maybe not as detailed as we would need for the forensic comparisons that we were to make. But nonetheless, there was some knowledge of variations in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm -hmm. But the real key, and this is a, a, a tenet of oil spill fingerprinting that's um, developed 
all the way back to Exxon Valdez is these the concept of these diagnostic ratios and to, to establish which diagnostic ratios are truly diagnostic for the oil that is being spilled. So um, that requires a, a thorough characterization of your oil. And then you start to compare those to oil, other oils or other types of contamination you might find. And you you learn, okay, this, this ratio is truly diagnostic and maybe this one is less so. And it was in the course of generating a large volume of data that the diagnostic ratios reveal themselves as to what is specific about Macondo oil that maintains its character despite weathering and can be used as truly a diagnostic ratio. Um, and and it, these are largely based upon individual chemicals, as Steve uh, mentioned, and that, as I mentioned earlier, that vary from reservoir to reservoir, so that they're um, uh, inherited from the uh, you know, the ancient organic matter that went into producing that oil over geologic time was a little different here than it was there. And we exploit those differences in these ratios. This year alone, we've seen a number of uh, marine oil spills from things like boats. Um, there was a rocket fuel spill in, in Russia um, a few months ago. And also last year, we saw the, the quite a large um, oil plume uh, around the coast of Brazil. Have you guys used these methods that were developed for Deepwater Horizon since that event in the last 10 years? Yeah, yeah certainly we, we use these or modifications of, uh, uh, of what we did in Deepwater Horizon. I think it's, it's safe to say, you know, there, there's, a, there's a, a recipe you follow for these types of investigations, but no two recipes are the same. You know, our, every spill, every investigation, whether it's, you know, an urban waterway or a major oil spill or a corner gas station, they have a, a unique set of circumstances and uh, that require some, uh, you know, planning and how this study is going to be uh, and the question is going to be answered. So there, there's a certain path, you know, and, and the use of diagnostic in ratios or highly specific marker chemicals that are indicative of one contamination versus another or or um, other techniques that can be used to help distinguish one source of contamination from another but you know so there's there's a certain consistency to what we do but each case is individual and and requires um, thought and planning as to how best to proceed to uh, achieve its, its objective. This really is an important thing in the nearshore study as well. As I mentioned, um, by the time this, the material you know, was blown in and landed on the beach, et cetera, um, for a little, some of it was tacky, you know, textured, the texture of it was tacky, but a lot of it were these like little brittle black fragments um, and even today, people are probably walking the beach. There's a storm event which kind of turns things around, a little turbulence offshore. Maybe it digs up one of these, uh, these oil mats, breaks it up, and then blows it in. Um, these things are happening. But, but the, the oil, the black fragments 10 years on that are showing up today are, um, uh, you know, if you think about differentiating them, what makes them different? from things that are in our normal environment. Um, for example, roadway pavement, that's made of the heavy fraction of crude oil. 
and we intentionally put that in our environment. And it contains most of the same hydrocarbons as this degraded material that's washing up on shore. So how do you tell if this is something I intentionally put there or this is something that BP or others uh, accidentally put there uh, through the oil spill? Um, and it's these diagnostic ratios um, that are carried with it. The compounds we're talking about uh, resist most of the degradation processes, even as extreme as we've described, uh, up to about 97% or more. Um, we still find these compounds um, uh, you know, in a signature that we can track back to deep water and differentiate them from you know, asphalt in our neighborhoods, roofing tile, sewage and sludge. All these things contain a lot of these same compounds. And again, the diagnostic ratios are critical for ferreting out what's what. Excellent. So how have you guys been using forensic chemistry in other projects then? Well, uh, let's see. I mean, certainly oil spills and, and as I said, gas stations and, and urban waterways and so on. One of the, one of the um, relatively novel matters I was involved in very recently was uh, a new application of environmental forensic chemistry for, for us. Um, it involved a, a, a railroad who had um, purchased millions of railroad ties, which we've all seen are normally treated with creosote-like material, the black tarry material that impregnates the wood and prohibits um, or inhibits fungal and bacteria from attacking uh, the wood as it's laid in a railroad bed. And the matter involved the, uh, a, a wood treater who was in, hired and contracted to uh, impregnate these millions of railroad ties with creosote, but allegedly used inferior materials like, like uh, used motor oil simply to make the railroad ties appear as if they had been impregnated properly with creosote, uh, but instead were in, impregnated or coated with a material that would not uh, prohibit bacteria or fungi from attacking the wood. So after a few years of use, all of a sudden this railroad noticed millions of railroad ties were failing um, on bridges and railroads, which of course were causing tremendous hazards to, to the industry. And we used forensic chemistry to in fact show that um, these railroad ties were not treated properly with creosote, which has its own fingerprint. They were instead treated with multiple inferior materials that were economically cheaper, but of course didn't achieve their goals. And uh, chemistry was able to distinguish creosote from these other materials. So that was an interesting application of uh, forensic chemistry. Um, there, are, there are of course others that we might be able to cover in some other uh, podcast sometime uh, of all, all these different applications. But uh, uh, Steve, anything else you can think of? Well, I, I um, there, there are a lot of chemical applications for the work uh, that was, um, you know, uh, developed or uh, modified in deep water. I think the top level concept is that deep water, like Exxon Valdez, took our game up majorly. 
Now we are looking for a wider suite of compounds. We know much better which, uh, which ratios um, uh, weather and in which way, in which context they weather. Um, so the, it was a game changer event um, in terms of building capabilities. And one of those capabilities is actually not chemical. Um, one of the things that happened in deep water, which relates to the work that has been done since then, uh, is the development of field sampling techniques. Um, a lot of the techniques that are used in our business are really focused on old contamination. That is to say, contamination that has come into the sediments and settled down and become incorporated into the sediments. So one of the things that is very difficult to do for oil spill work, where the release is, um, is current, is ongoing, is the fact that when the oil comes in, it's, it's floating, right? And then when it goes down and gets incorporated uh, into the surf, and then it sort of gets a little heavier, a little more weathered, it, it rides along the surface of the sediment, but it does this. It doesn't stay in one place. It's an ephemeral plume that moves with the tide and the waves and things like that. So uh, we needed to test this stuff. And there's no better illustration of that than the fact that um, many extremely experienced scientists were doing nearshore assessments uh, in 2010, you know, shortly after the release. And they're in sight of a heavily oiled shoreline in shallow water, and they are not finding in their samples back at the laboratory that they collected, they are not finding any oil. It's kind of mind-boggling. Um, and, and we were in the, same, in the same group. USGS has this big uh, study that they did in the near shore where they were saying, there's no oil here. Well, all of us were dead wrong. And the reason why was because the, the, the water, it's a big area, the water's very shallow, so many sampling teams had to use, um, had to use fishing boats, um, which were only able to handle um, sort of the very basic sampling equipment, lightweight hand tools. Offshore, all of these entities are using very sophisticated sampling devices that will capture the ephemeral plumes but near shore where you're using you know like you know buckets and uh, it's glor I'm, I'm simplifying it but you're basically using glorified buckets to get the sample and you and they're not detecting any oil so um i spoke with uh, noah early on about this and i said i think we've got a problem with uh, the field sampling program, I, you know, let me go down there and do a detailed analysis of, of what they're, they're doing. Um, and so we took, we basically took our, our team of most experienced field uh, tech, technicians and, and scientists and, and analysts, and we went out there and we were collecting, we, we would use the conventional samplers uh, of the day, of the industry, we used a wide range of them, and invariably, we pulled them up, and occasionally you can see the water on top of the sediment um, when you pulled these samples up, and you can see the oil floating on top. 
And then you look to the side and you can see that the water carrying the oil just leaked out the side and drained out the side of the sampler and down the side of the boat. So the point is, is the samplers were inadequate for capturing uh, ephemeral plumes. So we spent that winter um, building 10 uh, sets of uh, the samplers that did the best job of collecting this neutrally buoyant oil material. And we went back out into the field in uh, 2011. And all of a sudden we start finding the oil everywhere. So, um, so that was kind of an important lesson learned, uh, which, which we sort of chalk up to this concept of chemical reasonableness. You know, is what we're seeing in the chemistry reconciling with what we intuitively know out in the field? Um, and, you know, could we need to improve how we were doing it? And that's really the, uh, the impetus for innovation. And um, uh, we were glad we could accomplish it in such a short period of time. Brilliant. Final question for both of you then. Um, so it seems like it's come a, a long way in the last 30 years of, of study this environmental forensic chemistry. Where do you see the future of environmental chemistry? Where's it going? What do you reckon be the next big um, milestones for it? Well, I, I think I think Scott and I would agree that, you know, we're going to go out of business just as soon as we stop contaminating the environment. <laughs> but I think that's going to take a while. <laughs> Scott? <laughs> yeah, like, like Steve, Steve mentioned it earlier on, there's always new contaminants that are being um, uh, discovered as impacting the environment or in, in many cases, people, right? Um, and one of those that he mentioned was these PFAS chemicals, which, you know, nobody saw that five years ago even as, well, maybe 10 years ago as, as chemicals of concern. So, um, we are now, I think, at the forefront of developing tech, forensic techniques to help establish different sources of PFAS in the environment, for example. Um, before that, uh, 25 years ago, there was this gasoline additive called MTBE that was being added to, to uh, gasolines worldwide. Nobody saw that coming, and it's huge in, impact on the environment that it had because of its high aqueous solubility when gasoline was spilled. So there's, these are just examples of, there's always seems to be something that, uh, some new contaminant that will um, require forensic chemistry to understand its origins and sources in the environment and how it might change in the environment. So even if petroleum were to, uh, decline in use there's uh these there's always uh the next contaminant that's that's coming that's going to require the same applications as we currently use that's a brilliant sentiment to end on thank you very much both scott steve thank you so much for joining me today it's been a fantastic uh, talk through environmental forensic chemistry we hope you come back for another podcast perhaps in the new year but for now thanks a lot it's a pleasure scott. thanks thank you so that's the end of this episode. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, my thanks again to Scott and Steve for that excellent discussion on environmental forensic chemistry. Um, just so you know, Dr. Stout has 11 peer-reviewed articles uh, from the Deepwater Horizon incident, as well as many other um, publications on environmental forensics as well for you to look into. Um, if you want any more information regarding the content on this 
podcast or anything about Newfields Consultancy in general, then please visit our website at www.newfields.com. Alternatively, you can email me at rwilliams at newfields.com. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoy joining us next time.